But what golden repair is, is that in, in Japan, if somebody breaks a vase, right? Generally, if somebody were to repair that vase, the idea is to repair it to where you don't see the broken pieces or the blemishes and it's restored to its natural state as if there was never any cracks, there was never any brokenness. In Japanese culture, what they do is that they highlight the cracks hmm. and they piece it together because their thought process is that it's because of the cracks that this piece is more beautiful and elegant and refined than it was in its previous state. And so me writing this book, as you'll dive into it, is actually me exposing my cracks. But knowing that I'm refined by those things and not defined by those things. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Dr. Seb Talks Money Podcast, where we explore the basics of personal finance, the psychology behind financial decisions, life and business strategies, family dynamics related to money, and much more. Here you can discover actionable strategies to boost your confidence and improve your financial well-being through the inspiring success and recovery stories shared by Dr. Sev and her guests. We are kicking off season four of the podcast and we have an awesome guest to do the honors of kicking off season four. Today we're discussing building wealth from the inside out. Isn't that an intriguing topic? And the subtopic for today is getting real about money. I'm excited to have my special guest, who is Dr. Michael Thomas. He is an empathetic communicator and financial thought leader. He is an accredited financial counselor and a lecturer at the University of Georgia. His research focuses on things like financial empathy, self-compassion, data visualization effects on financial behavior, and a lot more. And I think that is so intriguing. And I also think this is one of the keys of unlocking the way we interact with money because it's beyond just the currency. It's how do we think about money? Why do we make the choices that we make about money? Before I bring Dr. Thomas on, if you want to learn more about his philosophy on effectively interacting with money, I invite you to check out his TED Talk and it's titled Financial Empathy, Understanding the Story Beneath the Numbers. Okay, Dr. Thomas, welcome <laughs> to the Dr. Sab Talks Money Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, again, like I, I mentioned to you before that we're supposed to do this much sooner and I dropped the ball and you've shown an incredible amount of grace. Uh, so I appreciate you uh, and still wanting to have me on. So thank you. You are very welcome. You you have the nuggets the people need. So I had to make room to bring you on for sure. Now, before we get into your book and the, all the different goodies that's in the book, I would love for you to kind of just give a brief synopsis of 
your research focus? Because we, again, we talk about financial empathy and self-compassion, yeah. data visual, visualization, and its effect on financial behavior, the connection between the brain function and money. Yeah. Just give us a brief yeah. synopsis before we dive into the book. Yeah, so my, my current role at the University of Georgia is uh, of a lecturer. So it, it actually isn't my responsibility to, to do research, um, but I, there, there are still these questions that I have uh, especially as I work with college students and thinking about behavioral change, uh, thinking about these conversations of resilience. And is it always resilience, the thing that gets people through? Maybe it's these other um, emotional intelligence things that are so incredibly important. Maybe it's just that people are more gentle to themselves than others are that gets you over the top. So is it always grit? Is it gentleness? Is it a combination between the two? And I think that with a lot of the conversations that we're having now, right, it's, it's kind of been on the grit side. It's been on the, the perseverance side, the resilience side, right? What if it's something else? What if it's yeah. people who are able to be compassionate to others and compassionate to self are better able to navigate financial shocks and things of that nature uh, because they don't internalize it in a way that it becomes them. Right. So I'm interested in considering other forms of internal self-talk and how that influences financial behaviors, persistence towards a financial goal, perceptions about life satisfaction, perceptions about self, so on and so forth. I think that's incredibly important. And then also considering this as it relates to how you interact as a couple. Right. You might have one person who's very hard driving, but hard driving maybe doesn't work for the other spouse. Right. It could be being able to be gentler and have these conversations that are hard conversations or financial intimacy may matter because that's a part of their financial love language. And that's what motivates them. So if it's just, oh, here's a budget, we're cutting all these line items, we're eating beans and rice or whatever it may be. You can completely demotivate someone who isn't motivated that way. Some people are motivated, motivated that way. But what I'm getting at is that we can't just put people in a box. We can yeah. consider people on a spectrum. And in doing that, we can actually engage in healthier conversations around money to actually understand what promotes optimal behaviors of myself, of somebody that I'm with, or a family member, and consider and be a little bit more tactful in the way that I engage with them. Because I always ask this question, is it about the goal or is it about the ego? Yes, yes. Right? Because if it's about the goal, it actually doesn't matter how we get there, just that we get there. And we have the capacity to engage in compassion and all these different things. If it's about ego, it's really not about the goal. It's about doing it the way that I want to do it, doing it the way that I think that you should do it, right? There's a control yes. dynamic there. You get where I'm going here. Yeah. So what I'm getting at is like, how do we get away from those those perceptions, those systems in terms of how we engage with money and understand that there isn't a one size fits all approach, but there is something unique to an individual if we empathetically listen and respond compassionately to get to where it is that we need to go. And then yeah. as it relates to data visualization and understanding our brain, what we're really getting at there is the, the, the nervous system, the amygdala right? Autonomic response, which is a flight or fight response. And if I am a coach, 
for instance. So I'm, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you one of my, my tools that I use with clients. If I know that a client is incredibly anxious when it comes to a budget, I modify the budget. Actually, I don't even call a budget a budget. I call it a spending plan initially. Uh, then I allow for the client to change the label. And that's something that I refer to in a book because I want them to use language that motivates them because it allows for me to speak their language and to understand them. And we're going to use their language in a way that we navigate this process. So I'm using motivating language one. And what I mean by modifying the spending plan is that we actually split it up. So instead of seeing a sheet full of all these things and man, I got to do this to get this intimidating number, it's, it's, it's too much information. Yeah. So I do a reverse spending plan where I create tabs and we say on day one, we're only going to work on income and income is the only thing you see on day two is the second tab. We're only going to look at handful of housing expenses. That's the only thing that you see. And the very last tab, every time you update that information, it's actually updating the actual spending plan. Yeah. So now what we're doing is that we're taking something that can feel overwhelming and we're breaking it down into very small pieces that ultimately develops momentum. What I'll also do is that when I understand, I'll ask individuals, are there different items on your spending plan that, that causes you a little bit more stress, right? And That's then I'll have question. them- I'll actually have them write that information down. So once they start working on their spending plan, we'll actually work with a few items that are very lighthearted. There's not a whole lot of stress because what we're doing is we're building momentum with the client. And then I'll intersperse something that is maybe a, they rate it as a three, right? But they built momentum into three. Then I'll bring it back down to another one that's one or two. And then we'll just gradually move into their stress level. Um, and not just give them all of this information uh, and completely overwhelm them and they just don't do anything at all. Or And if they don't do anything, it's very uh, unlikely that they're going to show up to our next session because they're going <laughs> to feel guilt and shame. And if they don't show up, we don't get an opportunity to let them know that actually this is a part of the process, right? It, it is uncomfortable and actually help them develop better internal self-talk and understand expectations. And oftentimes we don't get that opportunity. So then this person is now internalized that they, what they already thought was that I'm bad with money. And now that's entrenched even further after I've met with the professional. So there's no help for me. So yeah. I, try, I try to prevent all that stuff from happening by really intentionally being engaging in an onboarding process. And really what I'm looking for is financial intimacy with my client. Yeah. Uh, and creating a space for vulnerability, because once we have that, then the tools that I have, it's just a modification of the tools. It's not a redoing anything. It's no different when you go to the gym and someone says, well, if your knees, if you have issues with your knees, well, there's a modified version of the exercise that you can do. Yeah. You can still do it. So what that does is, is that when you work with people over enough time, you start to find these things that, that motivate them and not demotivate them, or we stumble into things that demotivate them. But what happens is we allow them the opportunity to experience that with us and then how to modify it to something that motivates them. So the beauty yeah. is that we're teaching them internal self-talk. We're modeling what modification looks like. If you're dealing with stress because of the visualization of a thing, and not just that, but how are you internalizing that thing? Where is that coming from? And then why is it triggering the response? And in general, how do you respond? 
Yes. Right. And so now we understand this and now the, the client is very much so aware of it. So my research is data visualization. And then with the wiring of our brain, the synapses, uh, which generally are heuristically formed, meaning that if we have a stimulus uh, and it triggers us a certain way, we don't even think about it. We just start eating. Right. We just start shopping. We just yeah. start doing X, Y, and Z because that was an adaptive response that's been so ingrained that we just automatically do it. And we don't even realize that we're doing it, but yeah. we feel good, yeah. right? Until it doesn't feel good. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, you shared of, so many gems. Yeah, <laughs> so, a many, lot of, so many. A lot of what I'm interested in is how do we actually move the needle? And even as professionals, understanding our role in maybe how a client is feeling. Maybe it's not just the client. Maybe we actually haven't taken the time to really understand the client, to use our capacity to think clearly as we understand the emotion of someone who is struggling with working through their emotions to present information, to present data, to provide our service in a way that gets someone to neutral and allows them to calm down and self-regulate so that we can begin to use our prefrontal cortex and actually take some step further, some, some steps further so that uh, we can engage in sustainable progress, not yeah. momentary progress that stresses them out. And then they stop doing it after they've started for two months and then they don't want to do it again. The hope for yeah. me, it's all about sustainability. So understanding data visualization, what's happening neurologically, um, when people are presented with cues, especially in our financial services space, is something that's intriguing to me. Uh, and it's something that I'm exploring with my college students. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it. I love what you're saying because too many times the coach make the relationship about them yes, and what they can accomplish with that client rather than what is it that that client needs I'm experiencing that right now with a, uh, someone in part of a volunteer group that I'm in. And it's not about you. It's what is it that the client needs to make that next step to have that transformation. And if as coaches, we can put our egos aside and yes. really work with the client and allow the client to lead as we are there to guide, but allow the client to lead the process. Yes. Um, it's, it's not for us to create a timeline for when the client should be at a certain point yeah. uh, because that feeds our ego and it makes us feel good. Like we're doing good work because, yes. you know, I was able to do X, X number of clients and they were able to do X, Y, Z, but yeah. is it sustainable? Yeah. Uh, because <laughs> because the process is getting them through the door, yeah. but is it a sustainable transformation or is it a sustainable process that you've created with the client? And I'm going to use some language here that is just going to be very this time period specific. But I got to quote Deion Sanders because Deion Sanders is everywhere right now in the news. <laughs> but what happens is that when it's about the ego, especially if you are the, the client service provider, when a client doesn't respond, it becomes personal. Yes. Because it's almost like it's a rejection of you because you are too tethered to this process. Uh, and if something doesn't work, Sometimes if it's about ego, then it's, well, I don't understand why that wouldn't work. So you wouldn't even know how to step back and see self in the situation to make the adjustments for the client because it's not about the client. It's about feeding your ego in terms of somebody doing well 
but it's really about you and a satisfaction that you're getting at out of it. And I call that a pseudo empathetic response. Yes. Uh, it's this idea of leading with empathy, but then pulling people into my orbit instead of still existing in their orbit and doing genuinely in the spirit of things that ultimately is always going to be in the, in the best interest of the client. But it's very difficult to do that if you're ego driven. And I have, so usually if I'm making a recommendation to a service provider, before I ever have a client call, I'm going to call first mm-hmm. and I'm going to act like I'm my client and I'm going to provide information and details. I want to see how they treat me. Yeah. I want to, I want to, I want to hear how they talk to me. I want to hear if I'm going through a phone maze. I want to hear, right. And there have been several instances where I've literally reached out to organizations before I recommended them to clients. I said, nope, not recommend my clients mm-hmm. here. Because if somebody's going to talk down to me, man, as if I'm like some person that has no value and you're this person who's in control and power and I need to listen to you. And I'm just calling just to get information, asking questions, and you don't really want to answer my questions. I'm not going to recommend my client to that service. I'm not. Yeah. And if I know somebody there, I'm going to let a superior know that this was my experience. And how do how can we effectively serve our community if we're not prioritizing relationship? It's yeah. just it's just not going to happen. And uh, so yeah, I'll yeah. I actually <laughs> I actually called an organization. This was not my focus. Like you know what you're doing, which is great because then you're really making sure your client gets what they need. I want to know. <laughs> yeah, and I actually called an organization, and the way the woman it was a credit organization because I'm interested in credit and all of that. So I wanted to see if there was a way for me to volunteer with them. And the way she responded, I was just flabbergasted. And I'm thinking, is this the way you talk to clients when they call? Yes, yes. Because now when I have clients who would want to work with an organization like that, I'm going to steer them away from them because yeah. we, our clients are already hearing all the voices and yep. hearing all the messaging, you're not good with money. Yep. You make bad decisions. You're horrible. You're all these negative things. And we don't need to push them into organizations that are going to pile on top of them. Yeah. That's one of the reasons why there are certain financial gurus that it bothers me when they tell people <laughs> they're stupid. I completely decisions. If, if that's the case, we all are stupid because yeah. we all make bad financial decisions. Do. And I don't, I don't think it's difficult, Dr. Sev, to treat people with dignity. Yes. Point, yes. point blank period. And that's really what we're getting at. It's it's the spirit of, of dignity. And as someone is who's lived a good bit of my life up to this point in time, even though I still have a few years ahead of me, what I'm always reminded of is that... I've been up and I've been down and I've been up and I've been down and I've been up and life, life can definitely be a roller coaster ride in a lot of different ways. Um, and just understanding how precious and fragile and how unexpectedly things can arise and understanding that is uniquely a human experience. I don't, I don't understand why it's so difficult just to treat people with dignity, just for the humanity of the person. Um, and, and actually that's, that's, that's why I decided to become an accredited financial counselor uh, with AFCPE, uh, because I believe 
that my service to people, the greatest service that I can provide, it's not financial, it's dignity. It's hello, Mr. So-and-so. Hello, Mrs. So-and-so. Can I get you a bottle of water? I don't care if you make $10,000 a year, if you're making $90,000 or $120,000 or $150,000 a year. I don't think that there has to be exclusion or segmentation in yes. me valuing you as a human being. And for me, I don't differentiate. I'm, that's just not how I operate. Uh, titles don't impress me. Wealth Amen. doesn't necessarily impress me. How you treat people is the best way to come into my space and into my circle because otherwise, I just I, that makes me very uncomfortable for people who can be one financial shock away, one job loss away, one X, Y, and Z away, and not realize that they could easily be in a similar position and they would want someone to see them with dignity and understand what they've done and the contributions they've made. Not, I don't care what you've done. This is where you are and we're gonna treat you a certain way. Yeah. And when you've yeah. done what we've done, Dr. Sev, we've seen people who've been up that are now who are down and yes. trying to call themselves out. And it's very difficult. And when you see it the way that we see it, I just don't know how you can't embrace this work with humility and not engage in an, with an empathetic and compassionate lens. Yes, I, I totally agree. And, you know, I wanted to ask the question, why is this work important to you? And I think we've already covered some of that. Yeah. But if you yeah. add some more to, uh, because we want to lead to the book as to what compelled you to write the book. But before we do that, tell us some more about why this work is so very important to you. Yeah, uh, I know what it feels like to not be seen. Yes. Right. And so one of the one of the earliest lessons that I learned in life. And, on, and you hear it a lot now, which is nobody's coming to save you, quite honestly. Uh, I, I grew up in Gary, Indiana. Uh, at the time that I was growing up in Gary, Indiana, it was the murder capital of the United States. I was eighth grade, ninth grade, and going into high school and you know, hearing about friends dying and losing their lives and things of that nature. And then being in a space that if I left Gary and people would ask, so where are y'all from? You're Gary, you're from Gary. People would look at you suspiciously and you're, you're, you're not seen. And then when you are seen, the worst is assumed of you. I know what that feels like. Yeah. Uh, so my thought process has always been is that I'm not gonna wait for somebody to come save me. I'm not gonna wait for somebody to come serve my community. I, I, I can't expect someone to love me more than I love myself. Yes. Um, and so- Can we just say that again? Yeah, I can't, no, I can't we expect can't for expect, someone. Yes, you know, please. Dr. Because they, they don't have the capacity to love me the way that I love yes. me when I recognize that I can too love me. And so mm -hmm. learning that very early on, uh, just kind of put me in a mindset where, yeah, they're going to be, life is going to be unfair. And, you know, I unpack some of that stuff in a book because I didn't want for anybody to think that, oh, he's Dr. Thomas and he's never experienced anything. Well, I want to speak to the contrary on that. But I'm not going to say that just because I've experienced something similar to you, that you should be where I am either. Because I'm very keenly aware that timing, a little bit of luck, a little bit of yeah. nudging, the right yeah. support at the right time when I was ready to give up and call it quits. If I didn't have that person to call, I wouldn't be here. If I didn't have that person to lean on, I wouldn't be here. If I didn't have that person to say, hey, I see something in you. Let me pull you, even though you're fighting against what this may be, I wouldn't be here. 
right? So I know that me being here isn't in and of myself and that there are a lot of factors in play that have led yeah. me here and I'm grateful to have this space. Uh, but honestly, and I'm a person of faith, but I give God all the glory yeah. in that regard um, through all the obstacles, through all the ups and the downs that I'm in a space now. And I don't take it for granted, but I, I enjoy this work because I just want people who don't, uh, and I don't want to get emotional. I want people who don't feel seen to feel seen. Yes. And yes. to and to know that you should feel seen. You should, yeah. you should, you should never shy away from being bright and sharing your light and trying to be the best version of you, regardless, regardless of the circumstances and situations, whatever it may be. And even while you're doing it, maybe other people don't want to see you as the best version of you and you're winning and you're growing, uh, but be seen anyway. Right. Yes. And uh, because nobody, nobody is going to do it for, and if I speak to the black, for the black community, like nobody can do that for us. That's something that we have to own for ourselves, regardless of, and I know that's hard contextually, but I cover these things. We can acknowledge it, right? We can wrestle with these nuances of history, but even in the midst of that, I can't expect for another community to love me before I love myself. Yeah. And if that's the case, there, there's no freedom there because my perception of self is externalized in such a way that is always dependent upon someone else. Yeah. And so I've had to, I've had to adopt a mindset where I have to be resilient and confident in me and my God-given abilities and lean into that as best as I can. Uh, but a lot of the work that I want to do is just help people be seen and be seen in an authentic light, especially yeah. in a research and a literature, because I see a lot of things that are written in terms of describing why people are where they are. And when we talk about women and minorities specifically, where you generally see lower levels of financial literacy, well, then my question is, well, what are we using to define financial literacy? Mm -hmm. I don't assume anybody that I'm speaking to is financially illiterate. They have financial literacy. They've been taught how to survive, how to hustle, how to grind, how to do whatever they need to do within the context of that situation to be able to survive and even thrive in situations that we wouldn't consider financial literacy, but it was absolutely needed for where they are. Yeah. Just because they don't understand something about consumer pricing index, some, some and inflation and rates, yes, yes. doesn't mean that they're illiterate, right? So yeah. I need to understand where you are, what have you learned, so that then I can say, man, that's amazing. That's powerful. And for where you are, that works. Now, if you're trying to go here, now we need to acquire some new tools. I never dismiss the tools that people have because yeah. if you're middle class, and you become impoverished, you can't use middle-class tools to thrive in poverty. It doesn't work that way, right? So it's understanding socioeconomics, social codes and dynamics, and how we're using different tools in different spaces to thrive or survive or whatever it may be. And I'm keenly aware of that. And I just, I just like for people to be seen without shame, without judgment. Yeah, you could have made mistakes. You, you already feel bad about it. I don't need to rub that in. Right. Yes. <laughs> the question is, is how would you like to move forward? Right. And like you mentioned earlier, and how can I partner with you? Because I value you yeah. and your capacity to do this. 
right? And, and I think that's a beautiful thing because it speaks life into people. And then once we get that life element of it, then the money stuff will take care of itself. But if people exactly. are confidently moving and feeling that they're worthy of yeah. the thing that they're striving for, right? Sometimes that feeling of lack of worthiness can be so overwhelming that even as I'm making sure be a big I inhibitor for, it, it, for it can inhibit, right? I need I need to know and forward, understand yes. that, right? Because otherwise is we're gonna engage in self-sabotage and then we're starting right back to where we are. So there's so much nuance and context within a work that we do. And I just I just love that integration of, of life and family systems and notions of agency and other external factors beyond family systems in terms of your community, uh, politics, different types of laws in your state or laws that don't protect you against predators or whatever it may be. Now I need to be thinking about, well, how am I advocating for the people that I'm serving? Because how does it benefit anybody if as soon as I teach you one thing, there's something else that's rolling down the hill. And usually it gets down the hill first, then we recognize it's an issue then we got to retool people up. Well, what I've realized is that I have, to, I have to be able to teach people and I have to advocate for the people that I serve. And, if I have and, access to the politicians, to the mayor, to local organizations, to people in state, like I need to be speaking on behalf and saying that, hey, this is how this is going to impact the community. And I don't want to wait until it happens before we address it. Because if that happens, now we've set them back a year and a half. They don't, we don't have time. Right. And so, yeah, some people don't want to hear me. <laughs> you know, that's the reason serving. why the accredited financial counselor certification is so important. But even more important than the certification is to make sure the right people are getting the certification. Yes. OK. And I know this is probably not something that's very popular to be said in the finance community, because not everybody who gets the certification is using it or is understanding the client enough to understand that the client needs to be seen. It's not about them. Yes. It's not about the certification. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I could go on and on, but I really want to get to the book. <laughs> I really want to get to the book because right, cool. we can do it. I, I have lots of thoughts. I have lots of thoughts about this having been exposed to this world of personal finance because for the first 20 years I taught personal finance in my church so it was in an insulated environment and until Sandra Davis introduced me to I love Sandra uh, AFC Yes, she's awesome. She introduced me to AFCPE. And then I start learning about all these different communities. But some of the things I don't like what I'm seeing in some of the communities, but that's I'm another sure. thing and another time. <laughs> so let's talk about let's talk about the book. So we're talking about black financial culture, building wealth from the inside out. This is a book written by Dr. Thomas. And there are some things that I want to pull out of the book. I'm not going to share too much because I want you to go buy this book and really dive into it and take your time and go through it and absorb the information and the different themes that Dr. Thomas has pulled out in this book. So what compelled you to write this book? I, we shared some of it before, but what compelled you? Why this book? Yeah. Uh, so one of the reasons why I pursued my PhD was because I wanted to learn what was happening internally in academia, uh, in social sciences, in the research and all that good stuff. Because again, none of that ever really trickles down to where I'm from. 
right? I've, I've never, I've never had a conversation around the dinner table. About, Did you see that latest research on black households and home ownership and how this is happening? Like we come on now, really, really It's never, it's I've never, ever in any situation as anything that's happened in academia ever trickled down to the household level ever. Yeah, the right? dry, dry. Right. So I can, <laughs> I love home. academia. I love academia because it, it gives you the space and the resources to explore these questions, uh, to do research. But I also know that, I also knew that if I would have focused on the research initially, I would have just stayed in that bubble. Right. Because it's one paper after another revision and so on and so forth before you get anything published. And I wouldn't have had the time to really focus on this because this is why I got my PhD. So what I wanted to do was the first work that I published after getting my PhD to honor my commitment to why I was doing this was to produce a body of work that was authentic and true to my experiences, but then also took a lot of what we're seeing in academia, both in the past, in the present and what's coming and speak to these things in a way where I'm not talking about Herbert Simon and bounded rationality. Like I'm not gonna have like a page and a half talking about that because my mom doesn't wanna read that, right? I'm not, Nobody I'm wants not to gonna that. have, I'm just gonna be honest, I'm not gonna have two pages talking about prospect theory and Kahneman and diversity. My mom doesn't wanna read that. I'm not going to be talking about systems theory or person-centered therapy or cognitive behavior therapy or solution focus or the trans theoretical change model of change. I'm not going to talk about those things. All of those things, the nuances of those things are actually in this book, but I never speak to them directly. You never know that you're reading the most latest informed thoughts as it relates to research because I reference Biggie Smalls right before I drop a gym, right? I represent, I, I will reference one of my favorite movies, Paid in Full, twice in this book before I drop a gym, right? And that's the context of it because that's the thread and I'm still communicating the point, but I don't have to be high level academic for you to get the message because even people in academia generally speaking, struggle with getting through papers uh, because they can be so high level, so heavy, and you're trying to figure out the jargon before you get to the methods and understand the, the outcomes of whatever just transpired. Uh, but I just wanted to produce something that's very academic, but so unconventional and does not seem to be academic at all. But you're getting everything that we're talking about in the spaces that I navigate. And not only that, you're getting information from someone who's actually been intentional about helping to lead a movement of like, for instance, when I did my financial empathy TED talk, we weren't really having major conversations around empathy in the financial services space. Shame was the predominant thing that we were using in financial services. Yeah. Now, fast forward, it's 2023. All you're hearing now is about the human side of money, and empathy. Do you know, prior to me giving that talk, I presented that idea to individuals and financial people in the space. And one after the other, they told me, I don't understand why that's important. Ugh. 
So the reason why I wrote this book was because, again, I can't wait for somebody to love my vision, just like I can't wait for somebody to love me. Yeah. I can't wait for somebody to get what I feel like I'm compelled and called to do. Right. So I can't wait for people anymore because we're losing time. So I wanted to produce some work where I'm like, you know, what? I'm not going through the traditional gatekeepers because they've proven to me over and over and over again that they don't see the vision. Right. In terms of where I clearly see we're headed as an industry, but they only see it when it becomes popular. And I'm not waiting for popularity to try to drive something. I don't even care if I'm popular, quite honestly. Um, oh but my God. I'm going to be consistent. You just, just dropping some stuff, okay? No, I'm going to be consistent, and I'm going to drive my vision. This is me honoring my yeah. convictions, and I yeah. that whole idea of waiting on a gatekeeper to tell me that something's okay for it to be okay. I'm not doing it anymore. I've spent too much of my life doing that, only for either people to take my ideas that they said weren't good ideas, right? And so oh it's just kind of like, no, I'm owning my own journey. I'm writing this book. I don't care how other people perceive it because if you read it, you will pick up on the spirit of where I'm coming from. And I don't think that anybody, whether you're black, white, Latinx, or whatever it may be, because this book is really for everybody, even though it's black financial culture, I just don't understand why it would be difficult to want to explore themes of black financial culture and understanding how this is a connective tissue of understanding the fabric of society. This is so American to me to be able to have this conversation and speak to blackness, but it not be other, but a part of. So I didn't even shy away from the book title uh, because I knew it would trigger some people, but that's a them thing. That's not a me thing. And so for me doing this, this is, this is me stepping out and basically saying that I know who I am. I know the value that I bring in this space and I'm going to be unapologetic about it, but I'm also going to be tactful in the way that I communicate the things that I communicate. And I'm going to be proud of me and not be looking for other people to give me praise. Uh, I'm just, I'm just happy that I stuck to my convictions and I wrote this for the people that I feel that need to be seen. And again, this is just not for black people because if you come from a background like I come from and socioeconomic status wise, I don't care what community you're in around the world, we see the same themes. We see the same themes. Yes. So this is a unifying book and not a book to divide people, but you gotta get past your own biases and my hope is that somebody looks at this and notices their bias and it triggers them, but then they read it and you say, why, why was I triggered to begin with? That's powerful to me. And uh, so I hope that that happens a lot from individuals who would look at this and say, well, what can I do? Actually, you can get a lot out of it. My name is Dr. Thomas. I do serve in this space. I do do research in this space. And I'm just as credible as anyone else in this space. And so I know that. And but I just wanted to provide something that was a little bit more authentic, a little bit more raw, a little bit more vulnerable, because I wanted to write something that we generally don't see when it comes to personal finances. And I think that I achieved that with this book. This is very unconventional. So I just want to prepare yeah. people in yeah. terms of what you're going to get, because we haven't seen this book before in this yeah. space. Because a lot otherwise of the are just carbon copies of, of them, of yeah. others with chapters shifted. For instance, I don't talk about credit cards. Yeah. <laughs> I don't talk yeah, about I credit cards in this book. You said something. 
Uh, you said it's it's not just for black people. I am working with a volunteer in several organizations. And one of the ladies said something that really pierced my heart. We were doing a feedback for, you know, just the, the not for the coaches or anybody, just the participants. And one of the ladies, a black lady, she said, one of the reasons she's happy she signed up is because she was under the impression that only black people had financial issues because she saw she saw all different races in the group that's coming to get help financially powerful that pierced my heart because society movies news news the news all of it makes it seems like only the black community has yep. financial problems. And when she said that, I had to go, you know, I broke it down and I not did not just say, oh, I'm glad you shared that. I broke it down and told her one of the reasons why she may have that perception. And the things that she now needs to go out and share with her community yes. and help educate them. Because it's not just a black thing. It's it's so many communities that are having issues. So yes. if you're listening to us right now, or you're watching on YouTube, or you're listening on the any of the podcast platforms, understand that not only the black community has issues when it comes to personal finance. It's everywhere. It's because we are we are shaped by society. We are shaped by the things we read. We are th shaped by the messages we hear. We're shaped by what we read in in um, in a newspaper, on the TV, what we hear. We're shaped by all these things, and we take in those messages by our family members. We take in those messages, and that helps to inform the way we look at money. And it's not isolated to the black community. Okay. <laughs> so, Doctor so, Seth, to to, yeah, to your point, on and on about this I, stuff because you're so, it's just so this is so good <laughs> yeah there's a there's a line in a book right and I, and so that kind of speaks to the spirit of this and, and i mentioned if if financial fragility was purely a black thing there is no way dave ramsey builds a multi-million empire because this multi-million empire was based on white evangelicals where we're mm -hmm. focusing on budgeting getting out of debt, making sure that you have the appropriate life insurance. Yeah. And then once you, as you work through your baby steps, then you get to potentially investing. It's, it, the, the, you get, you see, there's no, if it was yeah. only a black thing, there's no way that Dave Ramsey could be Dave Ramsey. It just, it just yeah. doesn't work. And so that particular part of the book is born out of me just polling my friends and getting their perceptions about what they identify with this black financial culture. And many of the same sentiments were expressed, Dr. Seth, that you expressed. And because you and I work in this space, right? We get to see how we get to serve so many people across different ethnicities and so on and so forth. And it's beautiful because we get to help them to realize their, their visions, their hopes, and their dreams. But it's it's not just, again, to your point, it's not one community. But that's the issue. When you feel like it's just you, right? It's very difficult to want to step out. It's no different than if you're in a class and it doesn't look, and you're looking around and, and I'm teaching and every and you're seeing all the peers in your class and they're nodding their head like they understand what I'm talking about. 
They're looking <laughs> and you're the only one. Stuff. You won't raise your hand, right? <laughs> right. They're writing notes like they know what I'm talking about. And you're like, I don't know what he's talking about. But everybody else looks like he knows what he's talking about. But I'm not going to ask for help because I think that everybody else has it together. But what they don't know is that those students who were looking like they were doing, they came, they found me either walking down the street. They came to my office hours in private. They sent me a message. They did X, Y, and Z. And they were like, hey, Dr. Thomas, I had no idea what you were talking about. Can you, yeah. can you schedule some time so that we can meet? I may need to meet more than once. But because they, per, because they present themselves yeah. as if they know, right? Woo. And you were kind of like, I don't know how to present myself. Like I know something when I don't know it because my face is going to look how I'm feeling. Uh, it's hard to navigate those spaces because you feel like you're the only one. And if I feel like the only one, if I feel like the only, I'm the only one, if I raise my hand, that induces feelings of shame, mm-hmm. and shame causes us to hide. Yeah, right. It does. And, it does. Yeah, and it's and that's what happens. We start hiding, and if we start hiding, we never deal with the issue yep. because I feel like everyone else has it together, and now I'm exposing myself. But what most people don't realize is that the vast majority of people don't really have it together like you think they have it together. Okay. okay. And there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. The beauty is that they've acknowledged it. Now I can start where I am and start building something. But if you never acknowledge it, generally what we do is we want to start where we wish we were. Yeah. And then we get frustrated because we didn't develop the tools and the capacity to actually respond and move in this space because we didn't develop the tools here. And then we get stuck we get frustrated and we don't achieve the goals that we, we hope for. So having vulnerability, knowing that you're not alone, I think is so incredibly important because then how else do you go through the process of asking for help? I've asked for help. Dr. Sev, I know that you've asked for help on multiple occasions. There is actually strength in doing that because it's not yeah. about ego. It's about the goal. Yeah. The, the hardest thing to do is to say help. It's the hardest thing to do, but it's so beneficial. There are so many people that are just waiting to help. It's hard when you're not in the right space. When you're in the right space and you know that that person, so Dr. Seth, like when you're working with somebody and they, and they see, and they know in your spirit that you see the good in them, regardless of what they've done, them asking for help. There's, there's nothing connected to it anymore because I know that there's no shame, guilt, or judgment that comes with this. And I can literally ask, not feel any type of way. And I can grow as an individual. I can continue to grow in this space. Uh, so being able to assess our social capital, the spaces that we're navigating, and whether or not those spaces are conducive to our growth is just as much a part of this financial well-being process Right. Because otherwise we don't have the community to sustain or sustain our growth. Uh, So connecting with practitioners, things of that nature to find the space. So there is no guilt or shame around raising my hand is so incredibly powerful because it doesn't have to be. It is. It is. It really is. Because with my story, the people who listen and watch, they know my story that at 53, I filed for divorce and had to rebuild my finances. But if I didn't ask for help, even though I'd been teaching personal finance for over 20 something years at my church, I still, it's only a fool has a lawyer for is his own lawyer or something to that effect. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I went and I hired somebody to help me because I can see my numbers, but I'm seeing them emotionally. 
but this mm -hmm. person is not going to see the emotion in the numbers. They're going mm -hmm. to see the numbers and they're going to be able to take, you know, weed the forest from the trees, <laughs> so to speak, yeah. separate yeah. forest from the speak. But me, for me, I'm looking at my numbers with all the emotion and all, everything wrapped up in it. And so there's no, no shame in asking somebody for help to say, Hey, I need yeah. help because Especially, I did a, an episode several weeks ago before I shut down the uh, podcast for season three. And one of the things I talked about is some of us who are in great position, we have the, we're making the six figures or we have the titles, the doctors and the, and the lawyers and the medical doctors and all of those. And the expectation is we're making a lot of money, but then a lot of times we may have a lot of debt because of student loans yeah. and other things. Yeah. And we give this impression that things are so well with us and we don't want to ask for help. And our family come to us and we're giving money that we don't have. And it's yeah. nothing wrong with saying, you know what? I'm in this position and I'm supposed to know it all. Well, none of us are supposed to know it all. But, no, I don't. You know, <laughs> I'm supposed I don't. to know this. I'm supposed to be here, but I'm not there. I need help. There's nothing wrong with that. That's, that's the best thing any of us could ever do for ourselves is asking for help, acknowledging that we're in a place financially that is uncomfortable and it's okay because we all have been there, or we're there, or we're going to be there. So ask for I, help. Anyway. Dr. Sev, and this is just a quick aside. I, I, that's, that's the element, because I, I firmly believe that served people serve people, right? Mm -hmm. And as we think about artificial intelligence and all these other different things that kind of come into play, and I don't think that we've addressed this yet, but the reason why someone may want to go to ChatGBT as opposed to going to another human being is fear of judgment. Yes, yes, yes. And yes, because yes. and because as human beings, we've created a space where being gracious and kind and authentically human on the positive side to individuals is not even expected anymore. Why wouldn't artificial intelligence continue to have more prominence? Because if I can't even get a human experience from a human, where I feel like I'm leaving, I'm leaving from this conversation. They actually use my name. Like I do this. I model this with my boys and my family. Whenever we go to a grocery store or we dine out, I am peering in on the name of that person's badge and I'm using their name from the time we start the conversation to the time that we end the conversation, because I want to do everything that I can to be a person that's going to dignify them if they haven't been dignified once throughout this day. And so when we, when we talk about these things and creating these spaces, why wouldn't artificial intelligence take hold if mm -hmm. what I'm really seeking is a human experience, but AI is actually being more compassionate and more kind than I would get from someone who that I otherwise would want to experience that from. And I really feel as if, if we can master this notion of service and really prioritize this as a skill set and a highly sought after thing, I think that we, for those of you who are navigating spaces right now, I really want to challenge you into leaning into being outstanding as it relates to the service that you provide, because that is going to be the competitive advantage yes, as we navigate yes, spaces yes. where artificial intelligence could do all the calculations. Yep. There's actually AI right now that can read an entire legal document and contract and pull out 
anything in there that could be kind of suspect that we may want to change the language on like that can actually be automated now yeah but being able to communicate with a client who is struggling who is overwhelmed who is fearful who doesn't see a way out and they can feel as if they can trust in you and to yeah. be dignified yeah, in this relationship that is the skill set within the next five or 10 years. I promise you, if you're working yes. anywhere right now, being I, I is agree. that person, who is that person? And also be tooling up on resources, things that are coming in terms of using yes. technology. <laughs> but you will separate yourself from 80% of people in this world just by being kind. Yes, yeah. oh my. Dr. Thomas, there's so much, there's so much. But I wanna go into, when I read this book, <laughs> right through the book. There are themes of trauma, empathy, wealth creation, legacy. There are just so, so many other themes. And what my takeaway from the whole book is wholeness. That's the message I got. Wholeness. So is there anything that you would like to add as a takeaway that's for somebody reading the book that they can have as a takeaway? And before we close, I am going to do a giveaway of a copy of Dr. Thomas's book uh, to a lucky person. So just stick around. We're going to be doing a giveaway. But yes, just kind of share with us what are some of the things that you want them to take away. And then I'm going to wrap it up with having you share with me the inspiration for the book cover and yeah. then a couple of quotes from the book. Sounds good. Sounds good. Uh, so this is a beautiful thing about this book is that... It, you, have you ever heard somebody say that, hey, like when somebody sprays cologne on them, it basically kind of mixes with their own natural fragrance and it kind of produces its own thing. That's kind of how I want this book to be. Mm -hmm. I don't want this book to be that this is what I want you to get out of it. I want this book to be whatever it is for you in this season of your life. And I can almost guarantee you that if you read this book in your 20s, you're going to see it differently than when you mm -hmm. read it when you're 25 then when you're 30, then when you're 35, and then when you're 40, and then if you're 50, you're gonna see things very differently in this book. And so my thing is, the only thing that I ask is for individuals to allow themselves to engage in an experience where they get to actually not just sit with the book, but also sit with self. Mm. And so, and not to rush through it and just say, oh, I read another book and it's a great book. And then move on to the next thing. No, 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 no. I would actually encourage that after you've read it once, give yourself some space, allow some of the themes to kind of resonate with you, and then come back to it a second time to reread it. And whatever you need to get out of this in this season of your life, you'll get out of it. If there's nothing that you've gotten out of it, well, there's nothing that you've gotten out of it. And that's perfectly okay. But I really, this book is about you. I, even on the title, I didn't put Dr. Michael Thomas, AFC or whatever, because I don't want that element. I don't want this to be about me, right? I only have my name on the front is because I need to have my name on the front. Mm -hmm. I want this to be where somebody just says, you know what, I, wanna, I really want to step back and just go on a little bit of a journey with self mm -hmm. as it relates to exploring these dynamics that are within this book and to see how it resonates with me and how I could potentially grow from it. If that's how you approach it, that's my only ask. The purpose of this book is not to tell people what to do. Yeah. Not to, I didn't even define black financial culture in this book. 
because that's for you to define. I think that that's what freedom is. The question though is, are you actually defining it for yourself now? Or are you just doing and not actually being aware of what I'm doing? Yeah. So the whole idea of this is to open you up to create some awareness of self. And then for you to have the space to say, I choose to do something different. And I celebrate you in that. And even if you choose not to do something, I celebrate you in that because you are expressing agency. And when the yeah. time is right, agency. the season is right, yeah. I know that you will move. You just might not. I've been in spaces where I was like, I know what I need to do, but I want to sit where I am right now because I'm mad. I'm upset. I'm frustrated. I don't want to move. I've been there. So not moving and moving, both of those are choices, right? And as long as you're making the choice and you're aware of the choice that you're making, I feel like you're going to be all right because you're internalizing, you're thinking through, you're expressing mm -hmm. agency. And when the timing is right, when you're ready to move, you're going to do amazing things, right? Yeah. So it's not for me to define what that is. I'm not telling people, this is what you need to do. This I'm providing you some roadmaps of things if you want to come back to it, but it's your choice. That's freedom. Yeah. It, it certainly is. I, I love that. The agency, you know, taking you, you have agency over your choices, over your life. You have agency. Now let's talk a little bit about the, the inspiration for the book cover. Absolutely. So the big part of this book is the heart. That heart is based on Eastern culture, Japanese culture, which is something called Kintsugi, which is golden repair. And so this idea had been sitting with me for a very, very long time. And it actually provides the foundation of the book, even though, excuse me, I don't talk about Kintsugi directly in the book. But what Golden Repair is, is that in, in Japan, if somebody breaks a vase, right? Generally, if somebody were to repair that vase, the idea is to repair it to where you don't see the broken pieces or the blemishes, and it's restored to its natural state, as if there was never any cracks, there was never any brokenness. In Japanese culture, what they do is that they highlight the cracks hmm. and they piece it together because their thought process is that it's because of the cracks that this piece is more beautiful and elegant and refined than it was in its previous state. And so me writing this book, as you'll dive into it, is actually me exposing my cracks but knowing that I'm refined by those things and not defined by those things. I love it. And, love it's, it. and, it's, and it's okay to heal, but then also know that we're gonna have some, some wounds from what we've done. And we don't have to shy away from those things because it, that healing and that manifestation of, there's nothing that's been a life about my life that's perfect, but I still carry myself in a way and that I know that I'm somebody. I still have worth and, and value. I don't have to be blemishless. Perfection is not required. And so that's really that bigger theme there and why I have the heart and a Kintsugi design because there's a lot of brokenness. And I say this all the time. It's easy to fix broke. Mm -hmm. Brokenness takes an entirely different tool set. Oh, yes. <laughs> broke is easy to fix brokenness is something different altogether. And what happens is that oftentimes we're dealing with brokenness 
and we're trying to use our tool set to address broke. Right. Man. So I wanted, I wanted to get, I wanted to go there with this book because again, I didn't want to write something that had already been written. Yeah. There are going to be some similar themes that you're going to see, but this is a very unconventional take on personal finances. And I wanted it to be that because I'm not the type of person to just want to just do the same thing that other people have done. I'm just going to point you in that direction. I'm like, yo, you need to go read this book, right? You need to go read this. But this is altogether different. And I think it's going to resonate with, with individuals who have very similar lived experiences that I've had. Yeah. yeah. I, I love what you said about reuse the tools for to fix broke, but really we need to be fixing the brokenness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The brokenness, it takes a process. It's going to take some time yeah. to fix the brokenness. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're using the wrong tool to apply, or we're using the right tool, but we're applying it to the wrong, wrong situation. Um, issue. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, wow. I mean, we could we could talk for hours. But I anyway, know, right, Dr. <laughs> I'm loving this. Thank you. This is good stuff. Okay, so every chapter starts with a quote. And I'm just going to pull out two that we're going to jump into for the interest of time. Number one, my favorite is money without wisdom is a liability. And that is the beginning of chapter one. Money without wisdom is a liability. It kind of speaks for itself, but give us a little bit more, Dr. Thomas. Yeah, so that's that's a repackaging of Ecclesiastes 7, 11, and 12. Mm -hmm. Money and wisdom can get you almost anything in life, but wisdom is the only thing that can save your life. And personally, what I feel is that we live in a culture, in a capitalistic society, that sells us an idea that if we have more stuff, more money, more accomplishment, more X, Y, and Z that we're going to be whole. Yep. The wisdom in that is that that's not true. Yep. Unfortunately, yep. that's why you have people who are making $500,000 a year and still can't make ends meet. Mm -hmm. That's why you have people who are multimillionaires who are contemplating the value of their life because the money didn't actually fill the void. Money doesn't have the capacity to love you. Money can provide you access. Mm -hmm. How you manage your money is going to mm -hmm. define whether or not you have freedom. There is no yeah. direct correlation between money and freedom because you're still in the midst of that. So if you have money and you don't have wisdom, you don't have freedom. I want to be very yeah. clear here. And we work with, I work with people who make a considerable amount of money and still feel bounded. And if it's not enough and it's never enough, there's no end to more. So when we have wisdom, it actually helps us define, actually, the better question is, what is enough? Yeah. And actually considering on that thought process and that line of thought. And if I want more, what's actually driving my need for that? Is it I need the validation of others? Is it some insecurity? Is it that I grew up in a household that dealt with very severe poverty and I actually struggle with feeling safe and secure, even now that I have this wealth. And you see this with individuals because that inner child is still a part of who they are. And yes. I was working with a client who had, what, 36, 2.5 million in a bank, was still anxious, high anxiety, incredibly fearful, and just could not settle, still very nervous about what's to come. 
Like this is the reality of what we see when we do our work that most people don't get yes. to, to glimpse of. Now, I'm not saying that money is bad and it can be helpful, but what I'm saying is that if you're putting all of your hope in money, it's going to yes, 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 every time. Yeah, and that's the key point because there's so many people who think if I just had more money, if I had just if I just had more money, without that wisdom, that yeah, money doesn't bring you what you think it's going to bring you. Money's important, but wisdom is equally important. So yep. the two together is yep. what actually creates the win. So the question now is, as I'm earning more money, am I also equally tooling up in terms of my mindset, my emotional state? Because more money may trigger us in ways that we never thought it would because it provides us access to things that we never had access to. Um, and it could actually cause for us to behave in ways that we never thought that was even possible. Uh, so very important to have self-awareness and uh, to actually to tool up and to never be hesitant, even with more money, to be very intentional about, all right, how can I be wise with these resources? I never see that. I've never seen a meme or a post from anyone who just got the bag. And the first thing that they posted was, you know what, before I do anything, I want to be more wise with what I've been blessed with. <laughs> You never see that. <laughs> and I promise you, we will be in a much better place is that after every raise, every this, every windfall, that people just slow down and said, how can I be wise with these resources? Doesn't mean that you can't have, doesn't mean that you can't take the trip, can't mean that you can't do these things, right? It's how you navigate it. In the words of big, more money, more problems, you have to know how to manage it. The beautiful thing is that managing money is a habit. Yeah. And it's how we develop and form and inform the appropriate habits. Because literally, if I'm investing, guess what? Investing then becomes a habit, regardless of how much money I have. Yes. If I'm investing 10% consistently of my thousand dollars that I make every week, every two weeks, then I could easily I've developed a habit, and then that habit could translate over to more. So I'm more concerned about the habits that individuals are forming yes. as it as it surrounds or relates to money. And how do we help them develop the appropriate habits? So regardless of how much money I have, I have a habit that is going to serve me well, uh, regardless, irregardless of the amount. Yes, yes, yes. Love it. Now, it is so hard to really pull out because, as I said, at the beginning of every chapter, there's a quote. And it was hard for me to see which ones I want to use in this episode, but I'll just use this other one. And it's abundance is a decision before it ever becomes a position. That quote is, is rooted in just mindset, quite honestly, because if, if I have to wait for someone to treat me with kindness before I treat them with kindness, when do I ever start treating people with kindness? Mm. If I have to wait for something to, to happen to me before I do it to someone else, then when does it ever, ever actually become? Now, what happens is that I'm externalizing the way that I engage with the world around me. And if I'm, ex if I'm constantly externalizing things, that, that means that the world around me is ultimately dictating my emotional state and how I respond. But I can, with having very little, respond and engage in life from an abundance mindset not of that of lack or scarcity, where when we start to focus there, everything becomes very small and everything's just about I, me, uh, because there can be some very real consequences between not having. Mm -hmm. But what happens is that regardless of our circumstances, we choose to give of our time still generously. 
I may not have the money, but let's say that I give of my time generously, abundantly in that way. Maybe I don't have money, but what if I give affection generously, right? What if I give kindness generously? What if I do these things? What if I choose to, to say that, you know what, this is who I am. This is my brand. And that's really what I'm getting at. It's like, what do you want your brand to be? We always talk about this stuff like brand, like, and so we don't have any issue with that paradigm, do we? We don't, <laughs> we don't because we talk about brands all the time and people will straight switch it up and say, you know what, all right, I'm in music and I'm doing this and I need to create my brand. I need to assume a new identity mm -hmm. because I want to be known for said thing. And then people do it. They follow suit. They change, they, they change their identity. They start communicating differently. They start dressing differently. They be, they be it before they become it. Mm -hmm. Right. No different than in Michelle Obama's book. That's on my, um, the light we carry mm -hmm. on my desk where she talks about the, the being before you become it. Right. Because you have to be it before you become it. Mm -hmm. So if I want to be abundant, I have to actually start engaging in a way that is abundance of self, where I have the capacity to give abundantly and then gradually build momentum from there. So if I engage abundantly in terms of generous of my time, then that means that maybe I serve someone that because I'm being generous of my time and I have a good attitude and spirit that this person's like, yo, this person's amazing. Like, where'd you get this person? Right. Because I've always worked in spaces where we didn't wait for somebody to submit an application. If we were out in the community, if we were dining somewhere, if we were engaging with somebody and they demonstrated characteristics and skills and things of nature that would suit our organization. My VP and I would actually go and have a conversation with that person and say, hey, you know what? We have X, Y and Z coming up. I'd love for you to submit an application. Mm -hmm. And that happens a lot more than people think. Because generally speaking, so for instance, for those of you all who are listening right now in your communities, there's probably been some type of major service project that's been done in your community. Did you get up on Saturday morning and go? Do you know why you should have been there? Because the people who are sponsoring that event are generally the people who are there. So you're working with, you're, you're, you're serving with the board members. You're serving with people who own businesses in the community who sit on the chamber of commerce, who do all these different things, it then presents an opportunity to say that, hey, oh, can I follow you on LinkedIn or can I follow you on social media? And next thing you know, we're having coffee. And the next thing you know, I remember you had said that you were interested in that. A buddy of mine has this opening up and I'm interested in you engaging in the process. But if you're not operating in abundance and your mindset is solely stuck in scarcity, then you're going to say, why would I go serve someone else when I need to be served? Mm. Yes, yes, yes. But through serving other people, especially in the right mm. systems, what you're going to find is that you're going to align yourself with like-minded individuals who are also going to want to serve you. Yes. Right. So that's what I mean by that that positioning of mindset. You got you got it. You have to you have to speak it and see it and start acting on it before you be it and ultimately experience because otherwise it's just not going to happen in the way that you want. And if you get small, you're not seen, you're not visible. And then what happens is that we create a system that prevents our success and we can't even see it. Yes, man, there's just so much that you've shared 
today, Dr. Thomas, and I really wanted to dive even deeper in some of them, <laughs> some of them, but I think we'll probably be here another yeah. three or four hours. <laughs> Stay long for Joe But you know, thank you again for sharing with the Dr. Seb Talks Money community. We certainly appreciate you giving up of your time. Dr. Seb, can I, can, I, can I speak to something really quickly? Randolph okay. mentioned something. Serve without expectation. I think, that, I think that we need to unpack that a little bit. And the reason why I mean this is that there is no reason, there, there is nothing wrong with engaging in a process to get something out of that if that is your goal, right? What happens though is that people say this, but they don't mean it. They say, oh, I'm going to serve without the expectation, but they really want reciprocity. So if you want reciprocity in what you're doing, just own that you desire reciprocity and don't say that I'm going to serve without expectation. Mm -hmm. Because if you have an expectation and you know that you're wanting to get something out of it, just be, just be very clear and upfront, right? I'm here serving the community. And, you know, I just thought this would be a great time that's mutually beneficial. Serve the community and also meet with some excellent people here that could potentially propel my career. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you're desiring reciprocity with what you're doing, own it, communicate it and make it known and not for it to be some underlying agenda. Don't mm -hmm. say that I'm going to serve without expecting, but you don't really feel that way because you don't wanna accept that you are really wanting to get something out of it. There is nothing wrong with that. Every circle that I navigate, people are always making asks. People are always trying to say, can I partner with you on this or do it? And they're very clear and upset. Yeah, they're serving, but they're here for a reason too. And that's okay. And I don't ever want anybody to feel shame or guilt for wanting to ask for something that they need to get to the next level. Because everybody that I work with in the spaces that I navigate are constantly making asks, whether it's for a million dollars for this project. Or can you come and you check this out and can you do it at a discount for me, right? Like that's how the system works. That's why community is so important. Nobody does this alone. And don't yeah. be afraid to make the ask. Hey friends, just a reminder that I do need your help. If you listen on Apple Podcast, would you leave me a rating and a comment? If you listen on Spotify, don't forget to follow and leave a rating. If you listen on Amazon Music or Audible, writing a review would be extremely helpful. And don't forget to share. Let someone else know about this awesome podcast. And lastly, if you want to support financially, you can buy me a coffee at $5 per cup. The link is in the show notes. I can't wait to share the next episode with you. Until then, See you later.